So we start a new series today called, uh, called Me Too. And I want to introduce it by taking us to a moment that we have all experienced. Uh, and because we're sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior, uh, chances are we have experienced both sides of this moment in some form uh, or fashion. Let's say that you're struggling with something and it's a big burden, like it's a big deal for you. It's a, it's a major struggle or burden. And, and you feel in that struggle or burden, you feel alone, you feel isolated in that struggle. Uh, maybe for whatever reason, you're worried about what others might think. You're worried nobody else struggles with it. Uh, maybe you're ashamed of that sin or, or part of that struggle. Uh, maybe you're like me and you're just afraid people are going to laugh because it's a silly thing. Um, Whatever the, the thing is, whatever the fear is that keeps you from sharing that struggle, let's say there's this moment where you decide, all right, I'm going to go ahead and go for it. I'm going to share this. I'm going to tell this. I'm going to, to like let this burden be shared by somebody else. <laughs> That's the moment we experience often. The opposite of empathy and care and compassion. <laughs> we often don't receive a listening ear what often happens in that moment when we're sharing our story with somebody else is they give you one of a few things. Uh, they often may one-up you with their story. I mean, we've all experienced this, right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What about me? Blah, blah, blah. Maybe you receive the talk to the hand kind of treatment that ignores you, that diminishes you, that creates relational distance. Maybe uh, they're like, and not that I've ever been this person, but maybe they're the oracle of all knowledge. And you start talking about your problem, and this other person, well, you need to fix this, and you should da-da-da, and I know because da-da-da-da, and the science shows that blah 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 and boom, relational distance, oracle of all knowledge, there you are, alone in your struggle. Now, and listen, this isn't just serious burdens or things that weigh on us. This isn't just like personal sin struggles. This happens all the time in a whole bunch of situations. Uh, like even social situations, this happens. Anybody heard of Brian Regan, the comedian? At least a few. Come on, some more hands. I know you're out there. Thank you, my people. Okay, I want to make sure some of y'all are with me. Um, Brian Regan's a comedian. He talks about this dynamic, and it's not with like serious sin struggles. It's like at party situations with social things. It'll help paint the picture for us a little bit. He calls this uh, dynamic the me monster. Let's watch this two and a half minute clip here. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. 
the four wisdom teeth people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail! You will never complete one. Trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um, I had two, but I had four pulled. Oh, okay. No, five. No, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn in the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. Now, obviously, that's a funny take on it. But he's right, isn't he? That happens all the time. Not just with silly things like two wisdom teeth stories, but it happens when we're sharing hard things, burdens, struggles. Maybe you're like me and you feel like you're just going through life trying to tell two wisdom teeth stories uh, and like, like others are just waiting for your lips to stop moving before they can you know, start talking about them. But, but let's be real about this. This isn't just about social situations and, and, and sort of meaningless party stories. <coughs> We're talking about sharing real burdens and the reasons that we hesitate to do so. And, and to make matters worse, not only do we have experience uh, being one-upped or ignored or diminished, we've all been the me monster. Let's be real about it. We've all been the dork on the other side of that, haven't we? Who feels the need to one-up to diminish, to sort of, you know, give the impression as we end up communicating that I'm amazing and that other person is not good enough. The fix to this (laughs) on both sides of the equation is to learn to become Christ-confident, grace-confident people who stop saying, me instead, or, or, or you should, and who start learning to say in ways that God's demonstrated to us in Jesus, to start saying, me too. That's a huge shift when you think about it. That's a huge shift in life. From going from the kind of person who has to constantly say, me instead, or or you should, or something like that, that diminishes the other person. It's a huge difference to become a Christ-confident, grace-confident person who understands that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for us to say from a place of weakness that actually identifies with other people, me too. Huge contrast. That's what this whole series is about in these four weeks. And we're going to kick it off by looking at the example of Jesus and how in, in, in Jesus... God gave us me too and sympathized with our weakness. And, and week one here is about worry. It's about worry. <laughs> and, and, and that's the context about which we can 
pretty much all say me too, right? Like I worry about what might happen next. Me too. How would you finish this sentence? I worry about dot, dot, dot. I'll give you about five seconds because that's about all you'll need to fill your head with thoughts of things that may be worrisome. I don't know about you, but I have boiled down my worry to three things. I have boiled down my worry to three things, the past, the present, and the future. That's all. I mean, when you think about it, there are plenty of reasons to be worried. At least we think about that that way. Like if you're a reasonably aware human being who has just a few years of life under your belt and you have experienced just a smidge of the pain and the brokenness of reality, uh, then you've got plenty of reasons to be worried, at least we think, right? We've experienced that. The job, the car, the house, the kids, the marriage, the finances, uh, extended family, our friends, the consequences of my sin, the consequences of my past sin, the consequences of others' sin, the consequences of sin in the world around us. I mean, it's easy to go through life just sort of waiting for something to happen because you get a few years of reality under the belt and you start to realize someday something will happen. You just know it's going to because this is life in a broken world. So it's like we, we very easily develop this sort of neurosis of worry. Like <laughs> we sit there worrying, wringing our hands, waiting for the effects of sin. Someone once said, when I don't have anything to worry about, it worries me. <laughs> now some of this is just life in a broken world. Uh, in general terms. But some of this also is for us at a personal level a distrust in the provision of Christ as enough to cover sin. Some of this in general terms, of course, is just the brokenness of the world. Duh. But how we filter that and how we experience that means that at some level there's this personal thing that is, because we don't trust that God's provision in Christ is enough to cover sin, really, <laughs> we begin to worry. We don't really think that God's work works. We don't think that God's work works. And we've been raised from birth to trust that our work is the only work that works. But that's not, that's not Jesus. That's not Bible. Listen, this is profound. You need to know this. Worry is just a common human condition that is fully and finally fixed in Jesus. Worry is just a consequence of sin in the world that's a common human condition that's fully and finally fixed in Jesus. Here's what we're saying today. In Jesus, God fixed the problem of sin so that you don't have to. In Jesus... God fixed the problem of sin so that you and I don't have to. The reason we don't have to worry is because in Christ, God acted to remedy fully and finally the problem of sin. Worry is a byproduct of a distrust in God's work. It's a belief that God's work doesn't work, so we must do the work ourselves. This is what we've all been taught from birth. <laughs> we have to disabuse, disabuse ourselves of that illusion. Because your work won't work. Until you understand that, you can't follow Jesus 
as being adequate to make up for our work. And there's a lot in there. We can't unpack all the places in Scripture uh, that talk about this dynamic. And it goes all the way through. But let's start with Hebrews 4. Then we'll jump back to Genesis 2 to show us a little bit about how this is true. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Uh, it says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest, we'll talk about that in a second, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest, key thought there, entering God's rest, has also rested from his works, from your works, my works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, God's rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We're told here, we'll keep that up for just a second here, Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. We're told here in Hebrews 4, 9 to 11 that we should strive to enter God's rest. And that when we do, we will have rested from our works as God did from his. What on earth does that mean? (laughs) We're not going to be able to unpack all of that, but we can understand some of the most basic ways that this helps us understand this dynamic and helps us in our worry. Turn to Genesis 2.2. We're going to talk about what this Sabbath rest idea is. Way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, this is going to help us understand the Sabbath rest thing a bit. It says this, verse 2, Genesis 2. This is at the end of God's work of creation. And on the seventh day, God finished, key word there, finished, God finished his work that he had done. And then he rested, another key word there, he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, our English word Sabbath comes not from the word seventh, though it becomes in Scripture associated with that. Our English word Sabbath comes from the word rested here in Genesis 2.2. When God completed his work of creating, of creation, it says he Sabbathed, he rested. Now, this wasn't because God was tired. <laughs> that he would like need a nap. We need naps. God does not. We need naps because we are limited by the brokenness of the world. Our bodies don't work forever. God didn't need naps. We do. Now notice the Genesis 2-2 here doesn't say God needed a rest. We read this idea of needing rest from our human limitations. It doesn't say that. It simply says he rested, which simply means God stopped doing what he had been doing because he didn't need to keep doing what he had been doing. I know that sounds sort of simplistic. It just simply means he stopped doing what he had been doing because he didn't need to keep doing what he had been doing. The work was finished. It was complete. This is why he says at the end of every day of work that his work was good. It was It was full, it was final, it was complete. Meaning, what he created on that day was good, meaning it did what he created it to do. At the end of each day, it was good. Ah, this is good. Ah, this is good. At the end of each day, he says this is good, meaning this that I've created is doing what I've created it to do. Man, that is good. And then at the end, of the sixth day, it says, he looks over all creation, Genesis 1.31. And it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was doing what he called it and created it to do. So when we get to Genesis 2-2, it says that on the seventh day, God finished 
his work that he had done, and he rested. That is a statement of God's satisfaction in his work of creation being complete, being full, being finished. Now, it doesn't mean that God never worked again or that he stopped working then. It means that his work in creation was complete. And most importantly, it means that his plan for creation working as it should was set in motion. Now, of course, as we all know, pretty quickly, uh, we humans come along and messed all that up with our sin. Our sin and other sin. And ever since then, we've been worried. Ever since then, we've been worried. Think about this. Most of our worry is because someone, somewhere, is doing something wrong. Someone else, someone in our family, us. I mean, I I know people who can read something in the newspaper and stay up all night long about somebody they don't even know because they are worried that someone somewhere is doing something wrong. Who is going to fix that person? For crying out loud, this world is so messed up. Who is going to fix that person? (laughs) Some of y'all experience this. Who's going to fix that person? Who's going to fix me? Same issues. Same issues. Who's going to fix this this messed up, sinful world where things aren't working right and I am a mess of worry and angst? That's how a lot of us go through life. This side of a broken creation. So, go into that world of brokenness and sin and messed upness and, and reason for worry as we experience it. Enter Jesus. On the cross, where Jesus made full and final payment, a once-for-all payment for all sin, Hebrews 10. There's an entire chapter in Hebrews that talks about this idea that what Jesus did was a once-for-all, full and final payment for all sin. So on the cross, think about this. On the cross, enter Jesus, the final words of Jesus who goes back to Genesis and at that moment knows exactly what he is saying, uses three words to say, it is finished. That's profound truth on which you can live your whole life. It's finished. You don't need to be a sin fixer. When you begin to trust Christ, you begin to work and experience your life from that truth first. Trust that. This is why Hebrews 4 here is such an encouraging passage. That's why it says we can now strive to enter God's rest. God's rest happened on the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. Your sin problem is fixed once and for all. Look at Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Uh, it's such an encouraging passage in light of what Jesus did on the cross for us, which is one of the main themes of what Hebrews unpacks. Look at Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest, meaning Jesus, who has passed 
through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, because Jesus is the perfect mediator between sinful us and perfect God. And because his work as mediator was a once-for-all solution, Hebrews 10, because of that truth, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast to our confession. Our confession is a profession of faith and trust that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. That's our confession. Our profession of faith in Jesus' work. Because we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Then it says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is where the me too part comes in here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, limitations, uh, in, in human sense, but one who in every respect, humanly speaking, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced the world as we do. Jesus probably had plenty of reasons to worry. <laughs> I mean, he grew tired. He was hungry. He experienced all the normal human limitations and temptations that we do, which is why Hebrews here can say he sympathized with our weaknesses. If you want the theological crux of this whole series, it's that little four-word phrase. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. You can be a me-too, an open-handed me-too identifier with people from your weaknesses. Jesus experienced that. Yet, yet, unlike us, (laughs) he came out on top as perfect and sinless, which means... He finished the work we could not. There's there's a lot there. If you just simmer on that. If you just simmer on Jesus finished the work we could not. That's the beginning of a process of unlearning worry. Jesus didn't stand off in a holy huddle. He finished the work we could not. Which is why verse 16 is such a great, encouraging verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, a throne that is in heaven, spiritual riches we could not have unless it was given to us, a gift of grace, blessed, uh, that we are blessed because he gives it to us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us hold fast to the confidence we have in Jesus. Which is to say, there's no, there's no need to hold fast to a worry that is ultimately rooted in a lack of confidence in God's work and a trust in our work. There is a palpable, distinct, eternal difference between our work and God's work. Our rest that's not rest and God's rest that is rest. Hold fast to the confidence that in Jesus we have grace and mercy. Which is to say, instead of striving to enter our rest, which is ultimately a self-salvation project of doing work that doesn't work, we are called to enter God's rest, which is a salvation project whereby He makes provision for us in Jesus. Friends, God has identified with us in Jesus. We worship and we serve a me to God.
because he fully identified with us in our weakness, overcame by being perfect, unlike us, obviously. But, but that dynamic, the fact that he sympathizes with our weakness, means that in our relationships with others, and during those moments, for example, when they share with us, we can say, me too, instead of, you should. Or, or me instead. Or creating distance relationally. There's no need. There's just no need. Because if we're being honest, most of us live in that place of uh, me insteads or you shoulds. That's where, where, where a lot of us live. We're guilty of the me insteads and the you shoulds. We are rarely people who sympathize with others and their weaknesses by having open-handed me-too kinds of a posture with, with people. I think we're afraid uh, that if we don't look out for ourselves, nobody else will. And I get that. <laughs> but the crazy part is that if you look out for yourself, God will ultimately let the consequences of that play out. Which is to say, your worry for you can become a self-salvation project that ultimately ends in separation from Him. And listen, Christian. <laughs> Me too is not an opportunity, not an opportunity for another gold star in your self-salvation project. Our tendency would be to treat it as such. And, and let me say this also. Even though someone else's specific struggle may not be your struggle, and, and maybe you can't identify with their specific circumstances, but quick question, you are a sinner, right? Their struggle may not be yours, but you know the struggle of sin. That's all you need to understand what open-handed, me-too, identifying with others as if that relationship is a place where you can sympathize with weaknesses will create an opportunity to bring others into the same rest you know in Jesus. Let me say that in a little more simple way. Me too is a point of contact between you and others. It's an opportunity for bringing others into God's rest. Me too is ultimately an opportunity to say he did. So the application for us is to know our me too's, to be open with them, perhaps even lead with them, invite with them. There's no need for me insteads and you should and diminishing the other person. There's just no need. Christians are notorious for leading with a false adequacy that we learned from other Christians who say you should. <laughs> Stop leading with false adequacy. And a strength that masks your worry that's not a strength and lead with me too instead. And here's a fringe benefit. <laughs> when you release your will to work for self, you will release your need to worry. 
if you will release, if you'll let go of your need to work for self, you will also let go of your need to worry. And friends, if we will become Me Too identifiers, open-handed Me Too identifiers in a Me Too church, God will bring to us lost sheep who need His care. When we say Me Too, we tell the story of God's work for us in Jesus. When we live Me Too lives, we tell the story of God's work for us in Jesus. Instead of the illusion of our work for us in self. Friends, we want to invite you to um, respond in whatever way appropriate for you. Uh, Respond to this amazing truth uh, that we serve a a Me Too God who loves us, who loves you enough to die on the cross to save you, who loves you enough to come alongside in Jesus and to sympathize and to overcome and do the work you could not do. We have a whole team of people, 12 to 15 folks during each service in our care room um, who have been praying for you um, and are ready to to be with you in that response in whatever way uh, is helpful for you depending on where you are in your journey with the Lord. Uh, There are a number of ways to do this. If you know Jesus already uh, and you're a part of um, our church family, we trust that the next step of involvement in the nine habits uh, of faith is something the Spirit uh, is making you mindful of. Maybe you're on the other side of things. You're not sure about your relationship with Jesus. You're not sure about all this conversation about sin and self-salvation project. Maybe you're skeptical. You have questions. We'd love to have that conversation with you wherever you are in your walk with the Lord. Um, Maybe today is a day where you commit to the church as a member, which is to stand here and say in front of a church family, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and as a baptized believer to say, I follow Jesus and I commit to growth uh, with you as you do to me. Uh, Maybe it's your day to identify as Christ in baptism, um, which is a symbol of our death to self, being raised to new life in Christ. It's a way of saying, my work doesn't work. Jesus' work is the only work that works. And so I'm to rest in that and strive to enter God's rest. So wherever you are in your walk with God, we'd love to have that conversation with you. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we'll have these lovely people from the care team here to uh, receive you and to talk with you and to pray with you. Maybe you just need someone to come alongside share that burden to have a me too identifier Um, so we'd love to invite you to come forward uh, in response let's go ahead and pray